Welcome to our continuing 2017 Educational Webinar Series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Dr. Summers, a board-certified anesthesiologist, lawyer, and businessman who is currently engaged in the private practice of medicine with Great Lakes Anesthesia, PC, as well as healthcare compliance consulting. He has several years of law practice experience. Dr. Summers serves as the Great Lakes Anesthesia Medical Director in the Parkview Community Hospital System and is the Chief Compliance Officer. Dr. Summers has an LLM in Healthcare Law from Loyola University School of Law in Chicago, Illinois. He was also one of the founding partners of Unified Anesthesia Services, LLC in Terre Haute, Indiana. Additionally, Dr. Summers was a co-founder and former partner in Strategic Healthcare Group, LLC, a leading provider of blood management consulting, education, and informatics solutions for hospitals, healthcare systems, and blood collection operations across the United States, which was subsequently acquired by Metaware. He has developed expertise in risk management, healthcare compliance, medical malpractice, informed cons consent, patient safety, and the medical legal aspects of blood component and drug therapy. He has consulted with private industry and the American Red Cross on transfusion strategies and liability attributable to blood component transfusions and relatable drug therapies. Dr. Summers has given numerous presentations at national meetings on patient safety issues, informed consent, and physician hospital, and blood industry liability related to trans transfusion therapy. He has hosted numerous grand rounds for hospital staff throughout the nation on transfusion therapies and strategies, informed consent, patient safety initiatives, and medical liability. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We'll address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Dr. Summers, go ahead. Uh, thanks so much. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about an area that's really uh, near and dear to my heart uh, involving second victims, recognition, intervention, and whether or not there's any protection for some of the peer support that's offered uh, to second victims. You may ask, what in the world is a second victim? <clears throat> Here's the, a very good definition from the literature. Um, they're clinicians who suffer through an adverse event, uh, uh, suffered by a patient. Uh, these second victims may exhibit feelings of distress, anxiety, guilt, and depression. They may question their competency and skills. 
And actually, observing patient suffering or death from medical mistakes can disrupt the strongest clinical foundation of a caregiver, unsettling even the practitioner's career path. Many physicians also face uh, or fear disciplinary reprisals or reputational harm as a result of an untoward or error-driven event involving a patient. Studies have revealed that many caregivers are impaired post-event, even without considerations of fault, and often have difficulty with their decision-making processes involved in subsequent patient care. Such distressed clinicians are more likely to make medical errors later as well. So second victim to those healthcare providers who are involved in, in, in a patient safety event, whether or not it involves a medical error or not, and really become traumatized by that event. Now, I also want you to understand that the, the first victim, the primary victim, is of course the patient and their family. But the trauma that a second victim, be it a clinician, physician, a staff member, and a nurse, is very real and significant. I would like you to think with me about these clinical error vignettes. They actually are actual um, 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 occurrences, uh, some that have been reported in literature and in newspapers. And I know you recognize that there is no healthcare provider uh, that ever wants to cause harm or, or make a mistake. But the reality is mistakes happen because we're human and we're fallible. You've probably heard about such circumstances where I gave the patient a drug. Well, it turned out they were allergic to it and the patient had an anaphylactic reaction and died. Or the situation where two residents were placing a chest tube. Unfortunately, they placed it on the unaffected lung side, not the lung side or not the side uh, with the tension pneumothorax, and the patient went in cardiopulmonary arrest and subsequently died. Or the factual scenario where a nurse or other staff member gave a patient 100 times the blood thinner dose because they misread the drug vial and the patient suffered an intracranial bleed. These are real circumstances, real factual scenarios that have occurred. And I want you just for a moment to think about how significant, how much of an impact these instances would have had on the person responsible for the mistake or error. Often, second victims suffer in silence. Most organizations don't have support programs, don't have uh, peer support programs or other rapid response programs, first aid programs that address a second victim's um, anguish and suffering when a medical event, a medical error has occurred. Well then, <clears throat> the problem is we as humans make errors. We make inappropriate judgments. And there's actually been a lot of data around this that identifies second victims and sort of what they feel, how they cope, how they react to the very traumatic um, event. There have been uh, inroads in intervention and support, but there still are barriers to really providing help 
and um, actual assistance to second victims. The final area I'll talk about is peer disclosure protections. And what I mean by that is a scenario where a second victim is discussing with a, a peer supporter or a colleague uh, what occurred, the, the event, the unanticipated outcome, the medical error that they made. They might talk about <clears throat> the fact that they made a mistake, that they were at fault or something. Are there protections for those statements so those uh, statements can't be used against a provider in, in a subsequent malpractice litigation or a licensure action or a credentialing uh, a hearing or, or uh, uh, um, review in the hospital? Well then, second victims. These harm events obviously disrupt the patient-physician relationship. In fact, in many instances, it ends the patient-physician relationship if we're not open and honest with our patients about the error or problem that may have occurred. It's certainly, again, prime victims here, patients, families. But now we know that it really impacts physicians and other caregivers and there can be lasting damage. Well, what really is the scope of the problem? As I said, physicians, like all mortals, make mistakes and commit errors. Medical errors are unavoidable in the complex decision-making process of medical practice. The scope and consequences of errors in medicine can be enormous. The Seminal Institute of Medicine report, Two Air is Human, in 2000, uh, noted that up to 98,000 U.S. patients die each year because of preventable adverse events. Subsequent work has expanded upon this and actually says it may be actually much more significant than that. In part, we live in a punitive culture in most organizations. We blame each other, we shame each other when we commit mistakes, and then we deny, we repress these and hide these mistakes. We also fear retribution and punishment. Is that what occurs in a just culture organization? Not at all. In a just culture organization, everyone looks to prevent medical errors and support those that are involved in them. It's a no-blame culture. We don't focus on individual blame. We focus on systems approach, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a couple minutes. In part, this scenario and scope of the problem also revolves around the notion of the perfect doctor if you will. That, of course, is an unrealistic term and really shouldn't have any play uh, in um, today's society at all, but there is still this belief that medicine can, can cure all ills and we hold each other to a very, very high standards. As I said, the initial report of the Institute of Medicine uh, to Air is Human predicted that about 98,000 people would die. Subsequent work uh, by Dr. McCary uh, has suggested that medical errors may be the third leading cause of death in the United States. Let that statement sink in. That's phenomenal to think that we may cause as many as one-third deaths, preventable deaths, in the United States because of medical errors. <clears throat> in reality, his view based upon previous studies and more current work that we that 250,000 people per year may die because of adverse medical events and in fact that figure doesn't even include um, um, 
error-related deaths in the outpatient setting or in home health or nursing home care. Furthermore, the actual rate of medical errors may not be adequately captured because of the limits of the ICD-10 coding system, as human and system factors associated with deaths are not reported on the death certificate. 250,000 then per year may actually be an underestimation. Look at this data from 2010, 13.5% of hospitalized patients experience an adverse event. 1.5% experience harm that contributed to their death. 44% of adverse events were preventable. We're not really doing a very good job. We don't recognize in part that most errors are due to system failures, in addition to individual fault. Yet punishing the person without altering the system perpetuates the problem without resolving it. The best approach to avoiding errors and near misses is analyzing the error, then creating mechanisms to avoid such mistakes. Recognizing and accounting for human imperfections when redesigning systems may also help guard against maladaptive human behaviors associated with mistakes and serve to promote learning and prevention as an effective way to reduce errors on both the individual and organizational level. Historically, the prevailing healthcare culture, the punitive culture, if you will, held providers accountable for almost any mishaps or errors that occurred during their care uh, of the patient. A blame and shame culture prompts physicians to deny and hide their mistakes, as I've suggested, which again is counter to efforts to mitigate the causes of errors. Really important two icons in the patient safety um, area notes, and Lucian Lee in particular notes that why we don't make inroads in preventing medical errors because we punish people for making mistakes. We don't engage in systems approach and organizational learning. James Reasons points out that failability is part of the human condition, and we can't change that, but we've got to address. We've got to have a systems approach in addressing errors from really a 30,000 foot level and then drilling down to the real causes. Well, what really is a systems approach? I've sort of outlined it a little bit, but we can't focus on human error because we can't eliminate it. It's a futile goal. It misdirects resources and focus, and again, causes in part this culture of blame and secrecy and promotes collusion and repression of mistakes and errors. It doesn't create a, an environment that we can talk openly about our mistakes and errors and hopefully try to correct them by promoting individual and institutional learning. So it's about reducing harm. Not asking who's responsible, but asking what is responsible and then focus on solutions. In fact, human uh, factors engineering has been very important in this series and it's used in the aviation industry. Again, not trying to redesign humans because that's impossible, but redesigning the systems in which we work. Well, what are really the consequences of medical errors on clinicians? I've outlined them very briefly before, but there's a very, very groundbreaking and important investigation by West et al. in 2006 that looked at this issue and noted that in studying um, internal medicine residents, one-third of those residents committed a major mistake in the study period. 
And this mistake was highly correlated to decreased quality of life, burnout, depression, and a loss of empathy. The loss of empathy is significant because mistakes contribute to this loss of compassion, which obviously negatively impacts patient care. And you notice the term burnout. Burnout is a big watchword in today's uh, medical society. Everyone's burned out. We work too hard, we don't get the rewards, and this is nurses, clinicians, pharmacists, techs, everyone is involved in that. So um, it's really an important study um, that addressed this link between distress and empathy is significant because it is consistent with numerous studies that suggest that medical mistakes contribute to this loss of compassion for patients, which again, as I said, negatively impacts subsequent uh, patient care. Um, further, there was a correlation in the study between the error experience and an increase in self-reported errors thereafter. This sort of represents a deleterious cycle whereby medical errors may lead to personal distress, which then contributes to further deficits in patient care. So really an important study that really, for the first time, correlated this decreased quality of lives, depression, empathy, loss, and burnout with medical mistakes. Another significant study involving a substantial number of patients more than, or excuse me, physicians more than 3,000. This study uh, in Canada and the United States, by the way, this study um, provided more understanding to the impact of medical errors on physicians while also uh, assessing how near misses affected caregivers as well. And again, this is important because it looked at actually practicing physicians, not trainees. And the objectives of this study were to evaluate how medical errors and revelation of such errors to patients impacted physician job stress, which physicians were most affected by the event, and whether physicians received appropriate support following a mistake. Well, what were the results? 50% of clinicians polled reported involvement in a medical error. 50%, let that statistic set in. This was well correlated with increased anxiety and stress about future errors. These individuals also noted a decreased confidence, they couldn't sleep, their job satisfaction was significantly less, and they believed they took a hit to their reputation when they were associated with any type of medical error. One interesting uh, note is that 90% of these surveyed physicians reported that their organizations did not support them in coping with the error-derived stress. Many clinicians expressed an interest in counseling after an error but felt there were barriers to seeking assistance including concerns about the confidentiality of the services and difficulty of securing time away from work. And without adequate support, physicians tend to resort to ineffective coping strategies, including blaming patients or other caregivers, hiding the error, or acting as if nothing was amiss. Unchecked post-error stress may increase physicians' risk of depression, drug or alcohol abuse, as well as suicide. So healthcare organizations should consider broadening the array of formal and informal sources of error-related support available to physicians and others during and after uh, work hours to better address these personal and job-related emotional stress after med medical errors are committed. 
really important study uh, showing that practicing physicians are involved in medical errors and, and very significantly the correlation between uh, the, the stressors and the distress uh, that occurs. So moving forward then, let's try to understand what helps a physician cope after a medical error. Again, another very important study in 2016 uh, noted that confronting medical errors transparently was vital for organizational learning, but understanding how clinicians learn and adapt after these events is also important for facilitating institutional peer support programs and education. While healthcare organizations are well aware of the second victim phenomenon, less attention has focused on how to frame post-event learning in a positive rather than merely a coping or surviving framework. In fact, research has suggested that trauma can be an agent for change that can lead to learning, major growth, and wisdom. This post-traumatic growth can occur when people coping with traumatic events move through a process of rumination and with self-disclosure and the right social supports are able to rework their understanding of themselves, learning and growing in the process. This study attempted to elucidate how physicians faced with a serious error could respond in a manner that promoted positive growth and learning despite the devastating professional and emotional impact of the adverse event. So using a variety of the tools, um, they looked at the what they called wisdom exemplars. They looked at positive responses and negative responses. The positive responders, uh, designated, as I said, as these wisdom exemplars, use the language of wisdom in their reported narratives to describe how the air experience changed them. They avoided repressive behaviors by talking openly with peers and patients. In particular, the investigation revealed eight themes that helped these wisdom exemplars cope with post-error emotion trauma, emotional trauma. And these are listed here, disclosing and apologizing for the, for the medical error, seeking forgiveness of the patients, and frankly, forgiving themselves as well. Those that had a moral framework did better with coping. A moral framework is a belief in God or a professional code of honor or a strong belief in humanism. These individuals also addressed their imperfections, recognizing that they had flaws despite still being a good doctor. Many became experts in the area they perceived as causing the error. It was also important that they prevent recurrences by developing system changes and improving teamwork, so they were very involved in that as well. Teaching and talking about their experiences were also one of the, the, uh, the part of the themes uh, that, that uh, helped them address and cope these uh, with this very difficult issue. And these themes seem to help the providers in responding to mistakes uh, and the overwhelming emotional aftermath, including the shame, anger, and grief shared by clinicians, patients, and families. These responses and narratives closely align, interestingly, with what patients desire when there's been a medical mistake. Error acknowledgement, an explanation of the incident, an apology, and a plan to forestall any recurrences in the future. And these common themes espoused by the wisdom exemplars in this study can form the outline for institutions to assist physicians in gaining the wisdom, 
and improving patient safety and assure that patients receive that information about event uh, the event that they need as well. And peer support programs should be created to foster an open discussion of error with a supportive colleague and support system. So very important study that addressed these issues. Going further, other studies have shown that there is a predictable uh, way and trajectory of recovery uh, for these second victims. And again, second victims not only include clinicians, physicians, but nurses, pharmacists, staffs, techs, anyone involved in, in a traumatic uh, adverse patient safety event. This study analyzed data through interviews and identified six stages corresponding to the, his the natural history of the second victim phenomenon. Similarly, this investigation was designed to prompt organizations to screen at-risk professionals immediately after the event and provide support to mitigate adverse career outcomes as well as to promote recovery. And again, these are the stages of, rec of recovery that I've outlined here. The first stage, chaos and exit response, represents an external and internal turmoil in the provider as they struggle with understanding what happened as well as while they're providing intensive care to the patient. So very distracted sort of approach involving self-reflection while still trying to manage a crisis. The second stage, uh, intrusive reflections, was characterized by feelings of inadequacy and self-isolation. The third stage, restoring personal integrity, um, often was marked by the need to support uh, seek support from a trained advisor or mentor. Uh, this stage was also characterized by doubts about a provider's career and concerns about whether he or she would be trusted again to provide care. The next stage, uh, enduring, uh, enduring um, the uh, inquisition, really reflected around the realization that there may be repercussions uh, impacting licensure, job security and potential malpractice litigation in the aftermath of this patient harm. Psychosocial and physical symptoms may emerge during the stage as well. The fifth stage, obtaining emotional first aid, involved again seeking support as well, but some respondents also noted that assistance they received was often, often very, uh, very uh, insufficient. Litigation concerns continued to emerge as second victims endeavored to reach out for help. In the final stage, moving on, there was both internal and external pressure from coworkers and others prompting the, the, the second victim to, to move forward from the incident. And there was really three ways in which that individual would do so. Dropping out, where they left the facility, left that that particular employment or potentially that career, a very harsh reality in, in some, uh, some instances uh, after a, a, a traumatic event, a, a patient safety uh, event. There were those that, were, that, that could, would survive uh, despite having um, uh, appropriate coping skills to uh, continue their work. They would often be haunted by uh, feelings of inadequacy uh, and sadness. And then the final stage, those that thrived. And thriving was reported to involve some change in practice. These providers were able to maintain a reasonable work-life balance, gain some perspective about the event. And actually, many became advocates 
for patient safety. These predictable stages of recovery, the respondents' narratives and insight into the assistance desired, really provide the framework for development of institutional peer aid programs to support clinicians that experience unexpected patient outcomes. And now I want to talk about some peer support programs. Now, there really are not a lot of these uh, peer support programs that address a second victim who's been involved uh, in an event and provide assistance, guidance, reassurance, and comfort. Uh, CANDOR, uh, which is a program created by um, AHRQ, a division of HHS, stands for Communication and Optimal Resolution Programs. It is really a program that's designed to um, change the way hospitals um, respond to a medical error. That is being open, honest uh, with patients and their family, disclosing up front what occurred, how it occurred, why it occurred, and really addressing those sorts of, of, uh, of, of areas throughout the investigation phase where it's learned exactly what happened and, and continually disclosing um, these sort of matters uh, to patients and their families. Part of that program, which is a well-structured uh, uh, change management approach, has a program or, or, or section uh, regarding care for the caregiver. It's a rapid response team, a team, much like the University of Missouri approach, that immediately, once there's harm, there's a team sent out to address the patient, and their family, but also the, those involved in, in, in the uh, unanticipated event and provide support and guidance for them. So that really is, is a nice model too. And that, that has been implemented in about 14 institutions as, as part of the pilot study uh, with uh, that program. The University of Missouri uh, Health uh, System um, recognized that without immediate support, uh, that recovery and even possibly the future career satisfaction of the health care providers could be jeopardized following an error in care. Based upon their interviews, they developed eight themes for caregiver support that were identified and they put it into a three-tier framework for their rapid response team. So eight themes of support that they incorporated into their rapid response approach whenever there was patient harm and a second victim who needed support and understanding. These eight themes included time away from the clinical area where the accident or incident occurred, creation of a just and safe culture, we talked a little bit about that, with a no-blame focus, again, focusing on system and organizational concerns rather than blaming individuals for their errors. Providing 24-hour, seven-day-a-week support, anytime, anywhere, if there was an incident, they were available by pager. Um, follow-up as well, a regimented follow-up with each individual involved in the event to make sure that they were coping and they were doing well. The promise that these sorts of things would be, that were disclosed, that were talked about, would be confidential. Um, they also individualized the services. Um, whatever was needed for the particular provider, beginning at the department level all the way to um, actual clinical uh, psychological uh, support um, as well, and I'll show you that in their uh, pyramid 
uh, of the three tiers. Um, one other very interesting um, approach and theme here is that they had a systematic objective review and feedback to the individual and other individuals involved in the untoward event about what really occurred. So that, again, there could be some open and honest discussions about what happened, as well as a potential attempt for the organization to learn from uh, any mistakes that may have occurred. So this theme, uh, th this, this program, again, this rapid response support, uh, providing support for second victims. Again, Tier 1 is a very low level of support, uh, staying in the department or the unit level. Uh, with a manager, chairman, supervisor, fellow team members who would provide one-on-one -on -one reassurance whenever there was uh, an adverse patient safety event. As we go up the uh, pyramid, there's greater level of support. Tier 2 involved trained peer supporters, also patient safety and risk management experts who could provide one-on-one -on -one crisis intervention peer support, mentoring, team debriefing, and other support, even through investigation and potential litigation uh, phases uh, uh, that were involved. And the last tier was Tier 3, which was really an established referral network uh, using a, uh, the EAP program, chaplains, social work, even clinical psychologists or psychiatrists w when appropriate. And again, tailored to the needs of the individual second victim, and as I've shown you before, second victims are certainly have, have stress, have distress, um, can, can be very depressed, um, and, and really can um, have some issues that really need to be addressed quickly uh, and very appropriately. And, the, and these, uh, the system has been very effective uh, in providing that that sort of relief in this framework uh, has been uh, is important because it's proactive. It represents the institution's commitment, sort of, to identify these potential victims and provide first aid immediately, as well as support throughout the various stages uh, in recovery. And as I said, I talked a little bit about barriers. Remember that healthcare providers are often reluctant to look for help and assistance at any time, much less after an unanticipated event wherein they may feel some blame uh, for the outcome. But this gap can be narrowed by active surveillance and immediate response after a high-risk event as described in this program. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, the issues um, what is a second victim? How do they respond? How do they cope? How can we support these second victims? Now I want to talk a little bit about sort of the actual logistics of what, when a, a, a provider, a second victim, comes uh, to talk to these, um, these first aid uh, programs, peer supporters, where they get debriefed, they may make certain statements. They may say, look, I, I made a mistake. I gave the wrong medicine, or I did this, I didn't do this, I should have done this. So really, they may make statements that really are against their admission from a, a legal perspective. And, and the question becomes, really, um, that they desire support, but, but they have a lot of concerns about confidentiality of their communication to peers and others after this traumatic event, and whether these statements, admissions, or details about their role in the incident could be used in evidence against them in, for example, malpractice litigation or any other disciplinary proceedings. 
and interestingly, complete candor and the type of communication uh, to emotional first aid response members and peers necessary to permit recovery and appropriately processing of this event may be impossible if second victims view this process with suspicion. Further, healthcare organizations may bulk at offering support programs if they suspect these services will be underutilized based upon these fears or that these conversations may later be revealed. So the real question is, are there legal protections, are there privileges, for instance, that would make these matters inadmissible, non-discoverable by plaintiff's lawyers? Um, well, um, it's an area that, that we can talk about here. Uh, there are very few privileges in this area. One in particular is the medical peer review privilege. It's a, a privilege that didn't exist at common law. Um, it, it is a statutory creation, um, but it has really the pro protections have been eroded over a number of years because um, it's, it, it's viewed as a, a limit to the access of, of actual truth and the evidence that may be very important in the case. So plaintiff's lawyers have been very successful uh, in, in having these statutes constructed, uh, construed in a very limited, uh, strict manner um, so it wouldn't extend uh, beyond the purview uh, of the statute. And again, uh, these sort of peer review statutes usually contemplate the use of a peer review committee um, as the entity responsible for deliberations about quality of care, uh, complaints, credentialing. So the second victim support programs really don't fit very neatly within the scope of most current statutory schemes. Now admittedly, um, these first aid programs offering support for second victims have very similar goals to a peer review committee. That is furthering quality of health care, learning, improving patient safety. But strict construction of these medical peer review statutes um, necessitates that the post-event communications and support measures must meet the terms of the statutes. And as I said, there's really because there's not a peer review committee or sort of a committee in the sense uh, of, uh, in this, this area and these programs, it probably doesn't fit within the medical peer review privilege. Um, certainly we could argue that this, these statutes need to be modified, but, but again, think of that task, getting every legislature to modify a, a statute and, and then fighting um, certainly American trial lawyers and other plaintiffs bar who are very interesting in getting all the truth and nothing but the truth um, in any instance. So th there are a lot of compelling uh, 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 forces here and, and, and it's likely that medical peer review privilege wouldn't provide protection for these post-event discussions. Well, one other privilege might. It's a patient physician or a therapist patient privilege. Again, it's a creation or a creature of, of, of statute. Um, it really didn't exist in common law, but, but similarly, there's a great deal of variability and these statutes are strictly construed. And most of the disclosures protected by a patient physician or a therapist patient privilege relates to treatment or med uh, medical care. 
So again, at least with respect to the tier one sort of approach, or even tier two, which we talked about in the uh, University of Missouri uh, uh, system, um, probably wouldn't be considered to fall within the purview of that, these sorts of statutes. Well, what about tier three, which is the more uh, significant employee assistance uh, programs or perhaps clinical psychologists or psychiatrists, statements made by second victims in those sessions might more likely fall within the purview uh, of these statutes. But as I said, for the most routine sort of peer support, first aid, rapid response to second victims, probably this privilege also doesn't really help us. Well, then the only other choice is to look at federal law. Well, the problem in part with federal law is most federal courts don't recognize any type of privilege uh, or testimonial barrier. Uh, again, they believe that in the broad scope of discovery and the interests of justice and bringing all relevant evidence to light. Uh, and that's why most federal courts refuse to acknowledge uh, a federal common law medical peer review privilege. So we get no help there. Well, interestingly, in 2005, Congress passed a, a new legislation called the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act. In part, due to the admonition of the Institute of Medicine's report recommending healthcare entities and providers report errors in order to identify patterns and develop system-wide tools to promote patient safety, the fear that healthcare providers might be subjected to liability, regulatory, disciplinary, or negative accreditation actions for reporting their me medical errors, thus leading obviously to underreporting, as well as the high rate of iatrogenic deaths and errors detailed in the IOM's 2000 report, Congress enacted what became the first uh, national health care error reporting system. And it was the first federal privilege for collection of patient safety data. And it represented a paradigm shift to a prospective analysis designed to improve system, systemic causes of error and, and promote organization learning. Well, again, the problem is that the term peer review is not even contained in the statute itself or any subsequent uh, regulations. And in fact, to qualify for protection under the act, the error reports and patient safety data must qualify as the patient safety work product. This work product does include information assembled or developed by a provider for reporting to a patient safety organization and would be actually so reported or created by the patient safety organization to conduct patient safety activities and improve patient safety, healthcare quality, or outcomes. Again, there is a great debate among um, commentators as to whether or not this creates or adopts a national medical peer review privilege. Because it can be argued that some um, of the analysis, reports, recommendations that a peer review committee engages in does fit within the definition of a patient safety work product. And others have argued that, well, even if that's not true, then we should modify this act to create um, a, a very specific 
unequivocal medical peer review privilege or to create a specific qualified improvement privilege that would apply to all statements or communications and discussion involving second victim physicians and first aid responders related to a patient safety event. However, this hasn't occurred yet and it's probably not going to happen on the national level. So many would argue that, look, when we have these discussions with second victims as peer supporters, as providing first aid to them or reassurance, debriefing them, we don't talk about why they committed the error, how they committed the error. They don't make statements against their interest. They don't admit that they were at fault. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then, then we don't probably have to worry about privileges or protecting these statements from later discovery by a plaintiff's uh, bar. Um, however, I would submit that many times that's exactly what occurs, and we really need to be careful. We clothe this and we say these are confidential uh, pronouncements and discussions, but in reality they may not be from a legal perspective. So it really raises the concerns that many second victims have that these statements may not be protected. Well, we've talked a lot today about the harmful effect of medical errors and how it not only significantly impacts patients and families, but their caregivers as well. Little was really known about the consequences of these traumatic events until recently as more research demonstrated the devastating effects and impacts of medical errors on healthcare workers. Now, as we know, commonly referred to as second victims. More data has revealed common themes that pervade emotional and the psychological state of second victims and provide insight into the type of support necessary to make those healthcare workers whole again. Some second victim programs have been created to provide emotional first aid for these providers based upon this new research. And as we talked about, second victims have expressed the need to discuss their medical errors with others to help them heal and recover from event. Whether these post-error communications can be protected from a, from a legal perspective at this point is really sort of up in the air. But physicians are very concerned that their candid statements about faults or errors, which really help them process the event, might be fallow ground for plaintiff's lawyers' inquiries. So there's really a concern about this. And I don't believe really on the state or, or, or federal level there's enough protection uh, at this time uh, uh, for these type of support. But there is a compelling need to safeguard emergency support for second victims involved in the trauma of a patient safety event, notwithstanding considerations of fault. As I've said, second victims suffer anguish, depression, anxiety, and burnout after these events, which impair their ability to provide care for other patients. Healthcare institutions must work to create a healing and protective environment where second victims can confront any mistakes in caring for patients as well as other adverse events to promote a culture of safety and transparency in medicine to do less will really compromise the care of future patients. Thank you, that's all I have. I appreciate um, your um, patience today.
Here's my contact information if you have any questions or concerns. Thank you, Dr. Summers. Um, that was a really wonderful presentation. Um, we had a few questions come in. Uh, so the uh, the first question that we had was um, was this one. Um, so why is it so important to develop a just culture in addressing harm events involving patients and their caregivers? Well, that's a really good question. I think developing a just culture is really a recognition by the organization that patients and caregivers matter and that we can no longer sit idly by and let clinicians or other caregivers deny that mistakes have occurred or not being open and honest with patients. We have to approach this in a systems manner. That is addressing errors uh, in a way uh, that will have an impact that can address organizational learning so that mistakes made, we can learn from those and we can not we cannot uh, um, continue to commit similar type of errors. So I think we have to switch to this uh, a known blame culture wherein we, we validate that mistakes occur and we look at systems, designing systems uh, to um, uh, address the human fallibilities and we know that we will make mistakes. We are human. We make mistakes. I've made mistakes. And we continue to do that. So we have to, nothing we've done so far has really made any significant inroad into the number of medical errors that occurred. I submit and others believe that a just culture, uh, creating an environment that we can talk openly and honestly together and with our patients and families is the only way to address um, um, organizational learning, and hopefully stem the, the very significant number of errors that occur nationally every year. Okay, great, great. Um, okay, it looks like we had another question that came in. Uh, so the next question is, uh, when caregivers disclose evidence of a mistake in their in the care of their patients to a peer counselor, shouldn't they be very careful about describing how they were at fault? Well, again, I've talked to you that I have a real concern as to whether or not these conversations um, can be protected. Are, are there privileges that might protect them? Again, many argue that, look, we're, we're not talking about um, we're not talking about uh, um, why the error occurred, what mistake I made, how I did it, those sorts of things. It's more general um, uh, discussion, but I submit that in order to process and cope with this event, and as I've described the literature uh, and, and the coping mechanisms and strategies, I think it's very important uh, to be open and honest with, certainly with caregivers and patients and their families. Certainly there's nothing wrong with having uh, someone from risk management involved in these conversations. In fact, uh, the CANDOR program that, that I mentioned briefly um, has um, many of these individuals on their various response teams. So I think that's not necessarily uh, an inappropriate uh, consideration. But again, I think we need to move 
to developing a very open and honest culture so that hopefully we can discuss errors honestly uh, and with candor and learn from those errors uh, and prevent them from recurring. Okay, so uh, so following up on that, um, that kind of goes along with a question that we had that was a, a third question. So um, that when a caregiver is involved in an unanticipated um, adverse patient safety event, isn't it best to not say anything to patients or their families without a risk management ex expert present um, because um, that might be misinterpreted as an admission of fault or recognition of a potential possible um, liability. Um, what would you uh, think of that? Well, again, you know, unfortunately, in most organizations, we still have this sort of deny and defend culture where when a mistake has occurred, we circle the wagons. We don't talk to the patients. The barriers are erected that prevents patients from talking to physicians, physicians talking to patients. And because patients can't get um, information, uh, sometimes taking years to get information from the organization, simply why the event occurred or what occurred the, in the event uh, or how it occurred or even getting medical records. So it, it really serves no purpose. Um, we force those individuals into litigation and we force those individuals um, very quickly uh, to immediately look for legal help. As I said, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with ever having a risk manager involved in these, as I said, uh, in, in the CANDOR process and system. It's, it's the, those individuals are absolutely involved, not only in the buy-in, uh, in the change management strategies, but also actually on the teams that they're involved in the rapid response to patients who were dispatched to patients and their and their uh, families, as well as um, providing care for the caregivers as well. So, but again, I think we 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 have to get away from simply being concerned about I made an error. What are the repercussions for me? I may lose my job. I may be involved in a malpractice action. I may be involved in licensure action. And you know that that is very true. But until we can get past that, until we can engage patients, family, and our organization to be open and honest with ourselves, open and honest about what occurred, we're not going to impact errors, uh, and we're not going to. Um, we're not going to develop a just culture, uh, which recognizes that, that errors do occur, um, but forces us to look at an overall systems approach um, and redesigning systems. And we have to have this information. We have to have this data so we can learn uh, and so we can prevent um, this harm from occurring uh, subsequently. Okay, well, Dr. Summers, we really appreciate you um, giving this presentation today, and I think we're, we're just about out of time um, today, so, um, so we have your contact information here. If anyone has any other questions, they can uh, contact you directly, um, uh, so people can use your contact information on the screen for any questions, or um, uh, Attendees can feel free to send us any questions as well here at First Healthcare 
compliance and we can forward them on as well. Um, attendees, you can also uh, register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or you can call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us. And thank you so much, Dr. Summers. Thank you.